Good morning. The reading today is from Acts 21, 27 to 22, 21. You can find that on page 931 and 932 of your pew Bibles. Paul arrested in the temple. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Tromophilus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Paul speaks to the people. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became, became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Being zealous for God, as, you all, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, 
Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go, to, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know the, his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who had killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Please allow me to offer a prayer of thanksgiving. Dear Lord, we want to thank you for all you've given us, innumerable gifts, so much that, that we, we can't name them all. There's, there's our health, there's, there's this beautiful country we live in, the, the great state of Texas. Lord, we also want to thank you for the trials that you have given us. We know that everything comes from you, and, and we need to be thankful and joyful for all that you're teaching us. Lord, please continue to watch over us and bless us and, and give us just a joyful and thankful heart to share the love of Christ with everyone around us. Amen. Well, it's a joy to be back with you in the pulpit and even more so to be back in the book of Acts. We enjoyed greatly the summer psalm series. I trust it was encouraging to you. Uh, but I've been looking forward since the beginning of the summer to be back in the book of Acts. And so we're here, uh, right where we left off. Chapter 21 there. A, a bit of a cl cliffhanger eight or nine weeks ago in the sense of what's going to happen. And we pick up right where we left off in verse 27. Uh, there's a bit of a double meaning to the, to the title of this sermon. A testimony of saving grace. It's not simply a testimony of how Paul was saved from his sin by the grace of Jesus Christ, uh, but it's also a testimony of how God uses all sorts of people and situations and places to save and keep his people for the work and the commission that he has given them. 
And so we're going to see Paul here not just recount how God has saved him from his sin, but we see how God is going to even use the enemies of Paul, Rome that is, to save him from what is certain death by the hand of some Jews. If you will, looking at your Bible, we'll begin there at verse 27. Let's just uh, take our eyes to the, maybe the left, of your, in, left in your Bible there, back to where we've come from. If you'll remember, in verse 17 of chapter 21, Paul had arrived through Jerusalem. He had hoped to get there by the day of Pentecost. He is desiring to stay in Jerusalem for some time, but not too long. He has set his face, as we might remember back in chapter 19, to Rome. He wants to get to Rome and to testify of the glory of Jesus Christ there. And when he comes into Jerusalem, verse 17, the elders of the Jerusalem church meet him. Uh, They encourage him by way of his public testimony to some of these zealots to undergo uh, some time of purification to show that he is a man that believes in the law. He's not a rebel without a cause here. And so he enters into these days of purification. Interestingly enough, in chapter 21, 17, and 18 and following, when he enters into these days of purification, we could take a look at the situation and think, Paul, you're kind of going out of your way. You really don't need to be doing that. But Paul uh, responds very humbly to these men. He goes under this time and he actually ends up using it. God uses those seven days. Because going forward, as he testifies all the way to Rome, he recounts, hey, why was I arrested? I, I was there to worship. I was there peaceably. I was there for purification. I was not there to stir up animosity toward Rome. Paul is desiring, in our verses even today, to explain the real reason why he's being opposed. He doesn't want to be known as, say, this Egyptian that's been brought up here, or some other guy who's walking around trying to stir up violence. If he's going down, he wants to go down for the name and sake of Jesus Christ. Jews would often undergo formal purification on occasion. It seems to be that there's an occasion here, Paul arriving from a Gentile area. He enters into this time of purification, and you can see in verse 27, the seven days were almost completed. He's in the temple. These Jews from Asia, more than likely, probably have followed him all the way from Ephesus. This morning in the prayer of confession, I prayed about the sin of bitterness. And what I try to do in the prayer of confession is to draw out a particular sin from the passage that we're going to study when, we, when I preach. And it would seem here that these guys are awfully bitter against Paul. Ephesus is not around the corner. Ephesus is not the neighborhood over. They have followed him hundreds and hundreds of miles, angry at him, for what he's been doing in preaching the gospel. Note, if you will, how they stir up the crowd. This is mob violence. Verse 28, they plea for help. They and, uh, take on this victim mentality. We need help, men of Israel. This man who is teaching everyone everywhere. He's taken my ball and all my toys and he's run really far. It's, it's hilarious As we look back on it, it was not in that moment. It was a very tense moment. They take half-truths out of context. 
They, they state complete lies. He has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Paul knew that's a no-no. I've even written down here two words that should never go together. Um, unsubstantiated presumptions. That's what they're doing. I mean, they're just making up all sorts of interesting things that make no sense whatsoever. And yet, enough passion with enough religious zeal, they haul out Trophimus, or at least they state his name. Trophimus was this man back in Acts 20, verse 4 and 5 that had come with Paul on this journey. And they stir up the city, verse 30. The outer courtyard... <clears throat> was known as the court of the Gentiles. There was a stone barrier between the outer courtyard and the inner sanctuary, and it was known you never take the Gentiles from the outer courtyard into the inner sanctuary. Paul knew that better than probably anyone in this day. And yet, they seize him, drag him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Second, Corinthians, Second Kings, excuse me, Second Kings 11, verse 15 might be something to jot down if you're taking notes. Then Jehoiada, the priest, commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out between the ranks and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So there was this desire upon these Jews who were zealous for the law to not defile in any way uh, the temple area. And so they, they drag him out. And it must have been quite the scene. They drag him out and then they close all the doors of the temple. This is a very public thing that's taking place here. And so whether you're on one side of the courtyard or the other of the temple, there's many different entrances. And all of a sudden, all the, states, the, the doors start getting closed and barred. And you can hear the shouts and the yells and all the commotion. It would have quickly turned into a whole city environment. But, but notice what, what takes place here. Verse 31. I, I think it's interesting the way the English translates the original Greek here. It's helpful for us as they were seeking to kill him. Think about that for a moment. Uh, it, I, I don't think it's, and we even hear here in a minute, they were beating him. It wasn't as if, hey, um, let's think about the right way we're going to kill Paul. No, they were actively putting fist to body, if you will, club to head, however you want to think about this, seeking by way actively to move upon Paul and kill him. So when Rome comes down to, in a sense, rescue Paul here in a minute, it's not they, they find him in the middle of a huddle and everybody's arguing. No, I think we should do it this way or that way. Oh, no. They have him. They are seeking to tear him limb from limb. As hilarious as it might be to think about the stupidity even of this mob back in that day, it was not for that moment for Paul. Uh, he yet again is having his life almost taken for the cause of Christ. Now, we have to recognize the sovereignty of God in all things. And one of these ways would be that the temple was the largest gathering place in Jerusalem. And so if, if there was going to be a mob, it was going to be there because it was the largest public space. If you go online, you can do it very easily. I would encourage you to do it. On the northwest corner of the temple was the Tower of Antonio, and this, Antonia, and this was the Herodian fortress. This is where all the guards of Rome were stationed, and as many as a thousand of them, we find out. 
This tribune is a commander of the Roman cohort. There was as many as a thousand men in a Roman cohort. They're literally next door to the temple. And they're actually higher up on the hill. So they could view everything that's taking place on the temple grounds. They see it happening. It doesn't take them long by the grace and sovereignty of God to muster the men and seek to dispel this rebellion. And that's what they do. They charge in. They arrest him. They stop them from beating Paul, verse 32. They order him to be bound with two chains. That probably means a guard on each side. Acts 12, verse 6, we can remember Peter. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, one on each arm. Probably the case here as well. Bound to two soldiers, and they bring him out, inquiring what he who he was and what he had done. Now, it was probably hard to get any good information. You see that in verse 34. The crowd was shouting one thing, another. It was pandemonium, chaos. The tribune could not learn the facts because of the uproar, so they ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So you, you can get the picture, I think. It's heated to the point that the soldiers are saying, we got no... We got no possibility but to pick this guy up and move him along. Even some of the, you may have seen it, uh, some of the protests that happened overseas with some of the stuff going on with racism and Black Lives Matter and stuff. There's a picture of a man who was being beaten by a mob and you have about four or five guys that go in there and actually rescue him out of that. And one big guy who's a workout dude puts the guy on his back and, and carries him out and they kind of encircle him so they can get this man to safety who was being unduly unjustly beaten and, and that's what's sort of happening here you've got the Rome going listen we, we got to get this guy out and so they literally carry him out to the barracks and notice verse 36 the people followed crying out away with him before we look at more clearly what's happening in 36, let's just note verse 33 yet again. This idea of Paul being arrested and bound. Acts 20, verse 23. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Acts 21, verse 11. And come to us, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Paul is a brilliant man. He has been given by God a mind that is very sharp. I have no doubt here that Paul, even as he's being beaten, even as he's being arrested, even as being changed to two guards, is going, it's not, it's, it's not my time yet. This is exactly what I was expecting to happen. I mean, I can almost tell you boys what's going to happen next. I've been led here. Nothing's surprising me. And I wonder, if you will, what Paul would have thought as he's being carried up these steps and as he's hearing behind him, away with him! He's not thinking, 
all the way back to what he knows. But they all cried out together, Away with this man! Release to us Barabbas! John 19, 15. Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. God uses even mob rule, mob mentality to encourage his saints. They're going to say it again at the verse 22 of chapter 22, away with such a fellow from this earth. And Paul counts it all joy that he might be able to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. There's a mistaken identity that happens in verse 37. This leader of the Roman barracks is surprised that Paul speaks to him. Do you know Greek, he says? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? The Greek word of assassins here means sakari or dagger men. This was the zealots of that day. Uh, this has even thought to be maybe the two robbers on each side of Christ would have been Sakari men, dagger men. Uh, those who had daggers within their coats and in the tight streets of Jerusalem and other places would slip up in their rebellion against Rome and put a man to death. He thinks Paul to be this man. And yet Paul tells him, no, I'm not at all, I'm a Jew. I'm like one of those, actually. I come from the same line, from Tarsus and Cilicia, Cilicia a, citizen of no, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. We need to pause here and just recognize that Scripture makes it very clear that some of our greatest opposition to the proclamation of Christ will be from those that are nearest to us. A prophet... Christ tells us is not welcome in his hometown. You can think of the opposition that David had from his own sons in advancing the name of God. You can think of, as we have here, Paul and the Jews. And it happens throughout Scripture where it seems to be that the enemy desires to work from close to further out. And we can kind of look out and say, well, we're ready for those enemies to march through that door and we'll take them on. And the enemy likes that kind of thinking because we overlook what's right in front of us or those that are nearest to us. And sometimes even in our, our zeal for the protection of the glory of Jesus Christ and the guarding of the gospel from the outside, we can fail to do it from the inside as well. Now, this is not necessarily what's happening here, but it is a good reminder for us that it isn't as if we can all just come to church on Sunday and think, well, we're all going to be perfectly unified. We don't have to worry about our relationships. We can just take on the gospel and, and unbelievers outside. No. We start from Judea and Samaria. We start here and then move out. We encourage one another in the Lord, lest the enemy might take an opportunity to plant a foothold of a division bitterness amongst us and keep us from being able to work together for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we, we know what's happening here with Paul. We know when, when there is opposition to the church of Jesus Christ, this is nothing that's unusual. It's actually 
foretold by Jesus that it would take place. John 15, verse 18 through 21, you know this passage. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. As I've stated, we need to recognize the sovereignty of God in all things. And God is using the unusual method of rescuing his servant, his messenger, Paul, using the enemy even of the Jews, Rome, to do just that. Even in today, we need to recognize God is the one who sets up kings and takes them down. Proverbs tells us the heart of the king is in the hands of God, and he directs it according to his purpose. Paul has set his face toward Rome, chapter 19 of Acts, verse 21, to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's not interested necessarily in how he gets there as much as he is going to get there. And he's trusting the Lord even through all of this. Brothers and sisters, may we have the same courage to set our faces, as Paul says his face toward Rome, despite opposition, may we have the same courage to set our faces toward our neighbors, toward our cities, our sports teams, our study groups, our co-workers, our families, to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can look on the news and it's very clear of the mob violence taking place in America. These are days of persecution against the church, not just here in the U.S., but increasingly across the world, and we must take heart. God has not vacated his throne. In fact, we should not be surprised in any way to see such opposition. You know, we turn on the news and we think, wow, I can't believe, we shouldn't, what, what really? We, we, we can't believe that's happening? He told us it was going to happen. It was promised. If anything, we turn on the news and say, hey, there's further evidence of God's word coming true. He said there was going to be opposition against God's people. Boom, opposition against God's people. God's true. He knows. And he works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's look at this second section, if you will which is Paul's clear defense. And let me just give you a summary. We'll look at it in depth here. But let me just give you a summary of this defense just so we can keep the main things, the plain things as we work through what Paul is doing. Paul desires two things. Two things. One, proof that his salvation is a work of God. Proof that his salvation is a work of God. And two, that he had not broken the law, but was following the command of Christ to go. That's Paul's twofold desire here. I was saved by God, and two, I've not broken the law, I'm simply following the command of Christ to go. And we'll see specifically the going is to the Gentiles. I think it's helpful uh, just 
If you have time, we don't have it for the next 30 or so minutes, but study Paul's speech here. Paul is in full control by the grace of God of his situation. He is taking full um, advantage. He's taking complete advantage. He's taking all the opportunity he has here to, to, to get in every little word he possibly can. Uh, to, to convict his hearers of the truth of who he is and who they are in the light and before the glory of God. He, he is picking words and, and leaving out other words to drive home a significant point. Here's, here's case, case in point, if you will. Here's point number one, if you will, of him doing that. Notice, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Paul's heard that statement before. That's the exact way that Stephen opens his defense. Where was Paul? He was on hand for the persecution and death of Stephen. Paul, Paul didn't drop that in there just because, hey, this is just the normal way we always open things, right? Brothers and fathers. No. He wants them to know. He knows full well what it is to stand in their place. He's been there before. Brothers and fathers, hear me. And then you see what he says. Verse 3, uh, all the way through verse 5 there, he appeals to his similar zeal that they have. He appeals to his upbringing. He appeals to his credentials, where he was educated, who he was educated by. Uh, he appeals to his following of the law. This man, Gamaliel, knew the strict manner of the law and of our fathers. He appeals to his Jewish heritage. And then notice in verse 6 what takes place here. He explains through verse 11 of his conversion, of what God did to save him. And to help him to understand the glory of Jesus Christ. We'll, we'll say more about this in a minute. But I want to just drop a few things in, in here. One is, notice verse 6. I was on my way to persecute the way. Paul doesn't drop way in verse 6. Just haphazardly in there. Oh no, he's already said in verse 4, I persecuted this way. And he, he's, he's using words, he's doing everything he can to help them to understand the irony of what's taking place before them. The subtlety, verse 8, by which Paul uses language here to drive home hard that this one, this Jesus of Nazareth is a Jew, verse 8, the promised Messiah of whom they have rejected. If you go back to Paul's conversion in chapter 9, verse 5, where Paul says here in chapter 22, he quotes, I am Jesus of Nazareth. It isn't mentioned Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth in chapter 9. Paul's bringing that in here to just lay home yet again the point. You're rejecting the Messiah of whom you know, of whom your scriptures have foretold. 
describes his testimony of saving grace and of what Christ did, seeing the light of the glory of Jesus Christ at noonday, a brighter light. We'll speak more about these things here in just a moment. But then notice what he does. He keeps going, verse 12. He's still building the case of he's a man that's not broken the law but is in obedience to the commission and command of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 12, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law. All along the way, your people have approved of who I am. Tells verse 17 of this commission by Christ being sent as a witness You see that verse 15, for you will be a witness for me to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And then he tells of this vision he has following into a trance in Jerusalem, in the temple, same place he's just come from, been beaten outside of. What's this trance about? What's this vision about? Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Who's they? Paul knows exactly who they are and they know who they are. Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Can you imagine sitting there listening to Paul speaking this going, he's talking about us. Verse 21. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then everybody comes unhinged. And you have to wait till next week to see what happens there. Let's spend some time thinking about the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Precisely as can be seen in verse 11 of chapter 22. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Brightness there is literally translated as glory. Paul, in his testimony of what he saw, what arrested him on that day, The Greek language, the Aramaic language, the English language fails to be able to articulate the the magnificence of what was before him. So all he could say was, was, it was noon. Think of noon in Texas, bright sun, can't look at it, scorching heat, and there was a greater light. And And it got me. It seared me. It stopped me. It's the glory of what I saw I could not unsee. I want us to go to look at a particular passage in the New Testament in the book of Luke. If you'll go with me there, Luke Luke chapter 18. I want us to see another passage Testimony, if you will, of God's saving grace. And I want you to see it as Christ gives it to us 
another turning, if you will, of the analogy here of blindness to seeing. Well, we actually have a blind man in Luke 18. If you're looking there, look at verse 35. Paul doesn't see himself as a blind man until that day of Damascus and then he recognizes himself as a blind man because actually the glory of Christ blinds him. So he recognizes that though he could see, he was blind and now he can see but he's blind. He likes the second one far better than the first. This guy here in Luke 18 can't see but can see. Can't see physically, but can entirely see spiritually. Look at it, verse Luke, Luke 18, 35. As he, that's Christ, draws near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. and he cried out, okay? And notice what he says. He doesn't say, Jesus of Nazareth, because that's what these guys over to my right and left have told me who he is. And we're just going to throw that out there. No, he knows who this man is. He's the son of David. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the savior. He's the ruler of all creation. He has the ability to heal. He made him. He knows his blindness. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Love this guy. Those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, oh, this is his day. I won't do it, because I'm afraid I might blow the speakers. But you can imagine what this guy's doing, right? Get the picture. It's not like, okay, Jesus? No, I mean, he's, he's, he's got one shot at this, and he's given it everything he's got. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. It's interesting. I mean, there's, we could preach a whole, I am, I guess, preaching a whole thing on Luke 18. But it is phenomenal here. This man can see Jesus and now he wants to see Jesus. Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and, they, and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. I mean, this is, this is us, right? This is the Christian. This is, I can't see Jesus. If I can open my eyes even bigger, I can't see Jesus. And then God in his kindness through Jesus shines the light of the glory of Jesus Christ on us. And then all we want to do is go to heaven and see Jesus. Right? I mean, that's, that's what this is happening here. I, I can see, and now I want to see him. And Paul, that's what, that's what Paul's doing. I see his glory with such splendor. I just want to tell you guys. I've seen Jesus. The name of Jesus is the only name by which any, any, and I underline it, any, like all the Pauls of the world, 
free salvation. Any man can be saved from his sin, even the Pauls of the world. The glory of what Christ does as the light of the world, shining in individual hearts as powerfully as the sun, driving away darkness and purifying the sins of our hearts by washing us clean through his blood. The glory of what Christ does as the light of the world, shining in individual hearts, is as powerful as the sun, driving away darkness and purifying the sins of our hearts by washing us clean through his blood. Ezekiel chapter 1, John chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1. Not Galatians, Genesis. Got a little over excited there. It's interesting. They all begin. They all begin with the glory of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. This is what Paul sees, okay? On the Damascus, this is what he sees. And above the expanse over their heads, there was likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated upon the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. This is the resurrected, ascended Jesus Christ. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness, there was glory around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around him. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. John chapter 1, 4 and 5. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Revelation 1, 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That is the glory of the ascended, resurrected Jesus Christ. And one day your eyes will see him. What does that do for us? Well, it does what it did for Paul. The ascended, resurrected Lord of all that is reigning over all gives the saved courage and passion to proclaim his name above our own cause. When you see Jesus like that, everything else is subpar. The ascended, resurrected Lord of all that is reigning over all gives the saved courage and passion to proclaim his name above our own cause. Not all of us have a Damascus-like testimony. I had the privilege this week of sitting with five or six people and hearing their testimonies of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, those who are looking to join the church. Every one of them was different in circumstance and life experience. But every true believer, whether you've got something like Paul's situation Or another type of testimony, every true believer knows that sin is persecuting Christ and that Christ saves them from that sin and commissions them forward. They all knew that. They all knew it. As unique as every testimony and story was, they all had that similarity of knowing my sin was against a holy God and Christ saved me and then he's arrested my life and called me forward. The call and mission of Christ for Paul, for us, comes before even our own well-being or comfort. 
Paul does, I think in closing here, we need to remind ourselves, Paul does or says nothing for his own good or well-being. Notice he's not interested in, hey, guys, I really don't want to go through that whole beating thing again. I've done that a few times. It doesn't feel too good. No, that's not his point at all. Or guys, listen, I just want to make sure that on my epitaph it reads, Paul, devout man of Judea or Jew. He doesn't want any of that. He just wants, he seizes even the chance here to proclaim the truth to Jew and Roman. His sole desire is to have the record read clearly as to why he has been arrested and beaten. Namely, because he was arrested and commissioned by Christ. And I said that purposely. He was arrested and commissioned by Christ. It's out of obedience to Christ, not because he is a lawbreaker. I wonder this morning if you're here and you've thought about whether or not Jesus is, is all glorious like this to you. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, that guy's kind of excited about these things, but I don't, I don't have that. I don't get that. Well, we can go through that in our own lives as Christians where we lose the glory of this, not in the sense of losing it forever, but it dims for us. And we at that time have to call ourselves to, to a time of going back to the word and saying, no, I, I need to see that. That's what God intends for me to have before my face at all times. And for some, it may be that I need to see that for the first time. And so if you're here this morning, if you've never seen the glory of Jesus Christ and recognized his beauty and recognized his saving work and what he has done to put himself upon the cross out of love for sinners in obedience to the Father to take the wrath of his Father upon him that is intended for us as sinners to, to show himself to be the perfect man having defeated then death and raised again on the third day. If you, if you have not seen that, if that's not arrested you and called you to, to look to your sin and, and see your need for a savior and then to fall on your knees as this blind man does in Luke 18 and plead with God to have mercy upon me and my sin, then let this day be that day for you where you do that. There's no better day. Tomorrow is over. We're not guaranteed. Yesterday's over. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. This is a great day to plead, son of David, have mercy on me. One quick illustration and then we're done. We talked about in Psalm 99 the holiness of God being like the sun. Uh, that which is extremely powerful, unable to be approached and thus our need for Christ to allow us to be able to come into his presence. Last uh, Two weeks ago, we were on the beach and we were reminded as a family of the power of the sun and the sensitivity of skin, right? This is summer. We're all growing in our tans, about to lose them. And you know, we, you get this tenderness and it, your, scu- your, sin become, your, your, sin, your skin becomes sensitive. I hope your sin is not sensitive. Your skin becomes sensitive and it burns. That's what the sun does. The brightness of the glory of God does such a number on us 
that it provides us a sensitivity to one thing. The brightness of the glory of God does this a number on us that it, it burns us in one way. That being that that glory, that brightness, that wonder of Jesus Christ is desired to be displayed above one's own personal gain, pleasure, safety, well-being, security, comfort. Whatever it takes, you have been seared by the glory of Jesus Christ and all you desire is for the glory of God to be advanced forward. And here's the thing, keeping with this illustration, the sun burns the skin and and then the skin heals and the sensitivity to the sun goes away. And it's the same for us. The less time we spend with God, the less sensitivity we have to the glory of Christ being preeminent in our lives. So we, we are to long, if you will, for that spiritual sunburn, that tenderness of heart that only comes from basking in the radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and if, you're in that, if you're in that place right now, all of us are at different times. Maybe most of us are. I don't know. But if you're in that place where I'm going, I want greater sensitivity to the glory of Jesus Christ. I, got, I have many things I could talk to you about personally, but let me recommend one thing publicly. Some of the men of our church have been reading this together, Rejoicing in Christ by Michael Reeves. Get the book. It's slim. Read it. It's very helpful to rekindle what is possibly a desensitized heart to the glory of Jesus Christ. Finally, are you weary of the battle that God has placed in your life? Then look to the resurrected, ascended Christ ruling over all for his glory. Are you faint of faith for a particular trial? Ask a friend to recount to you his work of saving grace in their life. Are you broken by the pain of this life? Then look to the one who conquered sin and took the punishment for this life, that is death, upon himself, that you might have life? Are you fearful of possible outcomes of current situations or relationships in your life? Then make sure Christ is central both in thought and word. And he will sustain you for as long as he has commissioned you to do the work he's called you to do to advance the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we submit ourselves to your word and we ask and plead that you might do the work to change us, conform us, straighten us out in our sin-bent ways to a closer representation of your son Jesus Christ. Grow us to be more like him even by the word that we've studied today. All for your glory. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen.